0: Thanks, Ryan. Well, good morning again, Gathering Church. Uh, if you're like me, I don't know if you've looked outside the last few days and uh, just had a new thankfulness in your heart for beautiful blue skies, um, seeing the sun, and uh, being able to breathe deeply. Um, it was uh, such a, a blessing to see the Lord's providence and in, in bringing good weather and uh, getting the smoke out of here. Um, In some ways, it was just such a a reminder of how much is out of our control and how much uh, we just are so dependent on the Lord and His grace. And uh, that is the message here of the book of Galatians. Uh, Many of you know we're uh, looking at the book of Galatians. Uh, We're starting this morning. We're looking at chapter 1, starting at verse 11, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible there. Uh, We just began this sermon series a few weeks ago. And uh, Galatians has always been a favorite book of mine, um, I think, because you see the gospel when you read it so laid out and just so plain, not just in theological terms, but I would say also in just very practical terms that related to things that were actually happening and actively developing within the church in Paul's day. Uh, Trevor told us back in his introduction sermon that we would see Galatians broken up into three main parts as far as structurally, and he said that we would see a history lesson, a theology lesson, and then an ethics lesson. And this morning, we're going to start looking at a a very large chunk of that history lesson portion, and uh, we'll be seeing Paul explain in detail his ministry career timeline To the Galatian churches. So, why is Paul going to all the trouble to outline this and to look into these details about his life and his career? Um, As James mentioned last week in his sermon, uh, there was a group of Jews within the church, likely a group of Pharisees, that were teaching that in order to be saved, Christians would have to follow the Mosaic law, uh, including the Abrahamic sign of, of circumcision. And uh, by requiring this, the group was effectively saying that the basis for salvation was not just on grace through faith; it was also through man's actions to obey God and to follow the law. And this was such an interesting and important debate at the time, because as Trevor mentioned a little bit during his first sermon, there's uh, the, the Christian religion. It was founded entirely within Judaism, right? And Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, Uh, he was working in Jewish cities, doing ministry to Jewish people, and in the book of Acts, all of a sudden, the gospel expands, it expands out to the Gentile world. Uh, First, it happens from a vision that Jesus gives to Peter that we read about in Acts chapter 10, he brings the cloth down and says, uh, kill and eat, you know, there's nothing unclean. And Peter realizes that there's the opportunity to send the gospel to the Gentiles. And then later, uh, Paul and Barnabas are sent out to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles also. Uh, At this early time in Christianity, and in Gentile Christianity, if you want to call it that in particular, the issues of how this worked were still being figured out, right? They were still being fleshed out. Uh, It was a lot of uncharted territory in many respects. Now, we don't know exactly when the book of Galatians was written. Um, A lot of scholars place it around late 40-something A.D. to early 50, so maybe around 52, 53 A.D. Um, Chronologically, it's among Paul's very first letters, actually, that he writes as far as the epistles. Um, First and second Thessalonians is one of the only ones that they date before that. Um, Some people date it a little earlier. Uh, The Council of Jerusalem is an important event, and I'm going to just talk briefly about that. We find that in Acts chapter 15. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but it's significant because it details the apostles making decisions about a lot of these same things that we read about in Galatians. What do Gentile Christians need to do to be saved? So I'm going to read just a few of the details here. From the Council of Jerusalem for some context. Uh, This is Acts chapter 15. We'll be looking in quite a few different places in Acts today, so don't get confused. This actually happens after all of the rest of the Acts that I'll be reading today and the rest of of Paul's life. So uh, this is Acts 15. Uh, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I think James mentioned that last week. Verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe... This is verse eleven here, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So, Paul comes up to Jerusalem. Peter gets involved here. Um, it talks about James as well, the brother of the Lord, a little bit later in Acts, and these apostles all mutually decide that we're not going. They're not going to lay any more burdens on these Gentiles that all they need to do is believe by grace. And they do come up with a very short list of things that they recommend they should abstain from, you know, eating blood and from sexual immorality. Um, But on the whole, you know, that's ethics played out. Um, All they're saying is necessary for salvation is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe through faith. Now, again, we aren't 100% sure when Galatians was written. uh, The Council of Jerusalem happened about 48 AD, so it's They happen pretty close in tandem here. Uh, Was it before or after the council? We don't really know. Uh, Did the churches in Galatia know about the council, if it was afterward? Uh, What we do know is that there was this group, uh, the Judaizers, as we often call them. Uh, They're trying to insist on circumcision for salvation. They're trying to promote their ideals, which obviously have found a, a foothold in a lot of these Galatian churches, and they're working actively to discredit Paul. And that's where the context comes in today. That is why Paul is writing what he writes that we'll read in chapter 1 here. Um, Because they're saying that he's a second-rate apostle, that he's nothing compared to these apostles that were with Jesus during his life. And they're also saying that he received the gospel from the apostles and that he's gone on to distort it and to twist it for his own own end. Um, So here's Galatians 1.10 again, and this will pick up right into our sermon. Um, It says, "For now, This is Paul. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God, am I trying to please, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, as James mentioned last week, it looks like the Judaizers have been accusing Paul of people pleasing. They believe that Paul has ministered to the Gentiles. He's been so eager to win them over that he's watered down the gospel. But Paul is going to defend his argument by showing that it's not his gospel. And that there's only one true gospel, and that is why we're looking at Paul's calling in detail today. So I have three points this morning. Uh, First, the sovereign grace of God. We're looking at chapter one, verse eleven to sixteen for that. Uh, Then, second point is the gospel from God. Looking at verse seventeen to twenty-four in chapter one, and then uh, the last point is the one true gospel, and that is chapter two, uh, verses one through ten. So first, uh, the sovereign grace of God. Let's look at the text, Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I'm going to push a pause there. Paul's going on to have more of an argument here, but let's look at this first section. In verse 11, we see the central statement here, this idea that Paul is going to go on to defend through the end of chapter 2. So this is really the crux or his thesis, if you will. Um, This is not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel into verse 11 there. That's the the big summary here, and you you could call that... The title of the sermon as well as Paul's calling. You know, it's, it's not man's gospel. Um, Paul received it from God. Um, he teases out his conversion story a bit in verse 12. Um, he says that he received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Now, the grammar here, it's a little bit unclear if the text is saying when it says of Jesus Christ, if it was in the sense of from Jesus or about Jesus when it says of Jesus Christ. But it's really one and the same. Uh, You could argue that it's both. The revelation was from him and it was about him, right? In verses 13 and 14, we see what Paul's life was like before Jesus. Well, for one thing, he had a different name, as you might remember, Saul. uh, And he was advancing in Judaism with great zeal. Uh, This is uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 3. Right after Stephen had been martyred, Uh, The text says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul was ravaging the church. He was bent on destruction. And in Galatians and other places in uh, the the epistles, we can see why Paul was bent on doing that. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 in our text, it says that the focus, we see that the focus for Saul was on himself, right? You, You can look at the text there. It says, my former life, I was advancing, my own age, so zealous was I. We see the focus on I, on me. Saul was about himself. Saul was the main actor in his own life. He was using his own works to climb a ladder that he and the Pharisee society that he had lived within had constructed in order to become godlier in their minds. Uh, Saul was focused on this idea of zeal, right? And he was very zealous. Uh, perhaps as we look through the Old Testament, we can see a lot of examples of lots of men that were, were zealous for, for God. Uh, Saul perhaps envisioned himself as a modern-day Phineas. Uh, We talked about him a few weeks ago. Um, as we wrapped up joshua he 's the man who impaled the, the man and the woman in the tent as they were defiling Israel before in the eyes of the elders and before God, um, or perhaps he imagined himself as a, a zealous Elijah on the Mount uh, Carmel, uh, killing the prophets of Baal and uh, slaughtering them. Uh, we see some some amazing zealous acts in the Old Testament that are, are similar to perhaps the, the things that Paul uh, Saul was doing, excuse me. But we see that Saul's zeal was misplaced when you look closely in the text. uh, It says that he was not zealous for God. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He was after something different than God. He was after tradition. He was after his uh, his own sense of pride in a lot of ways. But then God enters his life for real. Uh, We see verses 15 and 16. We see what Paul's life was like when Jesus entered it. And the text changes dramatically the the structure. Uh, It says uh, the focus becomes not Paul anymore as the subject, but on God and his sovereignty. And Paul all of a sudden becomes the object, right? The one being acted on. We see in the text it says, He who set me apart, who called me, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, most of us know well the story of Paul's conversion, right, on the Damascus Road. We can read about it in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 19. Uh, we actually see it again in Acts 22 when Paul is before the, there's a riot in Jerusalem after he's gone back. And he's able to speak before all the people in the Hebrew language. They, shut, they start to hush down and listen to his conversion story. And then we see it yet again in Acts chapter 26 when he's before, Paul is before King Agrippa. And uh, you may remember King Agrippa says, will you convince me soon to to become a Christian? Um, And this last retelling is perhaps the most apt one for today's message. So let me read just briefly. Um, This is Paul before Agrippa talking about his conversion, starting in verse 12 of Acts 26. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I love the phrase that Jesus says in this telling before Agrippa. He says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. See, all of Paul's efforts to attain holiness through his own efforts, all the work that he's devoted his entire life to up to this moment, they were useless when he saw the truth of the gospel laid out before him. God had set Paul apart before his birth. I love what Ryan prayed in that prayer there. Jeremiah had been put anointed from the mother's womb. We've been knit together. Um, God knows our frame, and he has called Paul here before his birth. It was inevitable that he would eventually follow God's calling. Jesus was telling Paul to stop resisting, to follow him, and he called him to be a minister then to the Gentiles. God's calling of Paul on the Damascus Road, it revealed the depth of God's sovereign grace apart from the law but to Paul personally. You see, he'd been unknowingly in deep, deep sin and all of a sudden, when he saw the truth laid out before his eyes, he learned in a very visceral way what grace was. It wasn't a, some figurative ideal in his mind, some theological construct. This was cut to his heart. And it was life, his life was turned upside down in a very moment, simply because God had called him and saved him of his own sovereign will so what application can we take away from this first section so to me the big takeaway is just this that god is the one who gives us salvation you know salvation belongs to the lord it's god who effectually calls us to himself and he's the one who regenerates our hearts and our minds he's the one who calls us out of sin to salvation from death to life out of darkness to his marvelous light it's by his own grace It's not the works of our hands that bring us to God. It's his grace revealed through his Holy Spirit. And this is important as we think about our own relationship with God, but it's also important as we think about evangelism and going out as well. As we share Christ with the world, we can plant seeds, we can water them, but it's God who does the work to bring the harvest by his Holy Spirit So we must pray for others, we must love on them, we must share the gospel boldly, but ultimately we must trust the state of our soul and other souls to God. The point number two, the gospel from God. Let's look back at the text. Galatians, uh, we'll start again in the middle of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So again, Paul's goal here is to show that this is not man's gospel, but that he received it from God. In verse 16 and 17, we see that Paul didn't consult with anyone immediately after his conversion experience. He didn't go visit the apostles and get the gospel from them. No, he went away. And apparently in the meantime, he started preaching immediately. Uh, This is Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So according to Luke here, Luke is the one who wrote Acts, if you remember, Paul began preaching immediately, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel right after his conversion. So we have Paul's account in Galatians and a few other places. And we have Luke's account. And they're working together here. Paul's gospel that he began proclaiming immediately was directly from Jesus. And this was before any interaction with the apostles at all. That's why he's, he's telling us this. In verses 18 to 24, we go on and we can learn about a brief visit in Jerusalem that Paul has with Peter and James. And this is followed by his departure for Syria. Now, Cephas is how he mentions Peter here. Cephas is just the Greek name for Peter, which Paul uses almost exclusively in his writings when referring to Peter, except, interestingly, in chapter 2, which we'll get to next. I'm not, not sure why he calls him Peter there. Uh, James, that is mentioned here, is not James the disciple of Jesus. He's actually killed by the sword um, early in the book of Acts. Um, this is James who becomes very prominent in the church. He's the, the brother of Jesus, And uh, he's presumably the the guy who wrote the book of James as well. Um, He's a very important part of the the church, uh, a pillar in the church, as Paul will go on to describe later. And uh, he actually speaks in the council of Jerusalem as well in Acts chapter 15. Uh, The timeline in the book of Acts, it only includes some snippets from Paul's life. And uh, we have to kind of piece together a little bit about what happened early in Paul's ministry. After the council of Jerusalem, the narrative in Acts flips And it focuses almost primarily on Paul from there on out. Uh, It's unclear when in the book of Acts Paul's initial visit to Jerusalem here happens. Uh, But the best correlation is found uh, probably in Acts chapter 9 actually still. Um, This is Acts 9, 26 to 28. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So back in in our Galatians text here, Paul mentions 15 days. He spent 15 days with the apostles and with Peter in particular. Uh, Why 15 days? Well, I think this shows that Paul and Peter clearly had time to connect about a few things. Most likely they, they did talk about the gospel and what that means. Uh, but it appears that Paul also spent a great deal of his time preaching, right? He went in and out among them, proclaiming uh, the name of Jesus boldly. Uh, this also took place three years after his conversion. And it was not, I mean, 15 days is not a significantly long period of time. It's significant enough, but it's not, it's not massive. Uh, so paul Paul is saying all this because he has two main points. He's showing, one, that he's not subservient to the apostles. He's not some kind of second-class apostle who just obtained... The gospel from them. And secondly, that he, he didn't get the gospel from them, right? Um, but he received it from God. So, two points of application as we move on from this. Uh, we've seen that the gospel didn't come from man, but it was revealed by God in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I think the, the big takeaway is this that he is the one who created the gospel, he executed the gospel, he reveals the gospel to our hearts. When we reject the gospel, we're rejecting God himself. He's the one who's revealed and communicated it. There's so many things that make Christianity so different from the rest of the world's religions, but perhaps this one is the most significant. It's not a man-made religion. It's a God-made religion. God entered our world by becoming man in Jesus Christ. He died on our behalf to reconcile us to him, and he moves through his spirit to awaken our hearts. When we start putting our religion in the same category with the rest of the world's religions, we're missing the point. We're missing the crucial difference here. We're not working to find God or to get to him. God has already done everything that we need and reached out to us. He is the one who executes the gospel. And a second, just brief application here. Paul, Paul speaks to his own integrity in the midst of this. We see in verse 20, he uses this oath to say that he swears before them that he's not lying, right? Uh, Paul's integrity was really important in this situation. He was defending the true gospel. While we can't weaken the power of the gospel, we can't thwart the plans of God, when we don't live lives of integrity, the message that we proclaim to the world is weakened. And this is why we feel so hurt and why we should mourn when we see leaders that preach one gospel and proclaim it and then live out something entirely different. And we can think of so many recent examples, unfortunately, of this. Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, uh, most recently Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, God is sovereign. He's going to continue his work and his will and his ways. But the men I mentioned, their, their ministry is it's practically ruined, you know? They've been rendered ineffective because of their integrity. Uh, this isn't finding our salvation in our works, so don't mishear me here. It's, it's keeping in step with the Spirit and living the life to which we've been called. And Paul's going to talk more about that when we get to the ethics lesson, as Trevor referred to it in chapters 5 and 6. So, finally, the last point, point number three, the one true gospel. Let's look at the text at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter and his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentile's. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul has worked really hard up till now in chapter one to show a separation from the other apostles, right? I received my gospel from God. I didn't receive the gospel from them. Um, It shows that he didn't receive his gospel from them. He wasn't subservient to them in any way. Now he's working in chapter 2 to show how he and the apostles work together and proclaim the one same true gospel. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul's visit to Jerusalem and his opportunity to lay out the gospel was there. He says after 14 years, now this uh, 14 years is actually probably from the date of his conversion, they would speak that way a lot in, in Jews. After three years, this happened. After 14 years, this happened. Uh, not, not 14 years after his other visit to Jerusalem. It seems that Acts 11, 27 describes this prelude to, to Jerusalem. This is uh, 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to help with with famine relief here. And this need comes about through prophetic revelation through the Holy Spirit, through Agabus, right? There's a need. Go up and do it. Uh, Paul mentions at the end of verse 2, about this idea of making sure that he was not running in vain or had not run in vain. And to be clear, Paul's not concerned about whether or not his gospel is true. He received it from Jesus Christ himself, after all. Uh, But rather, he's concerned if the apostles are going to refute his teaching and try to undermine his work, which would practically make any of his future ministry useless, right? If they undermine him and say, well, that's not the gospel. So when he lays out the gospel as he's preaching it, he's making sure that he has their blessing and that they can continue to minister effectively together, although to different audiences in different places. In verses 3 and 5, we see the first explicit reference to this issue surrounding circumcision. And this is, going to, this is going to emerge a lot more later in the book of Galatians. Um, Paul outlines how he and Titus and others with him, they stood firm in the gospel because they rejected false teaching and because Titus was not circumcised. Uh, verse 4, Paul calls these Judaizers, he calls them false brothers. Now that's very strong language. Paul is saying that they are, they're not true believers. Um, even though they're they're effectively a part of the church, uh, seemingly, uh, Paul is saying this uh, to proclaim that to proclaim the basis of salvation on anything other than the grace of God is heresy. It means that you're not a believer. He's drawing that hard line in the sand in regards to the gospel. This is the gospel. If you're on this side of it, grace through faith, you're saved. If it's salvation, Jesus plus. That's not the gospel. That, that side of the sand is you're out. Uh, he says that they've slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. So these themes of freedom versus slavery, they're pretty dominant in the book of Galatians. Uh, freedom in Christ in Galatians means freedom from the law, while slavery exists when there's something else that keeps us in bondage uh, that's required as the basis for our salvation. If we look at verse 6, we see that Paul says that the other apostles ultimately added nothing to his gospel. In saying added nothing, that means that they approved of Paul's message, right? His salvation by grace alone. And uh, when he talks about regarding the other apostles as those who seemed to be influential, he says what they were makes no difference to me. Uh, Paul's not trying to cut down the apostles themselves. Um, he's not that petty that he would need to do that in his pride. What he's doing is cutting down that elevated view that the Judaizers had of the apostles. Um, he's trying to show them that they're, they're just human, right? They, the Judaizers have been trying to discredit Paul, you know, saying he's second class. And he's saying, hey, these guys are just, a, just normal people, you know? And it's a good reminder that Paul inserts here that we cannot look too mightily on men. We can't put them on a pedestal because they're, we're fallible, um, all of us. And indeed, as we'll see in next week's sermon, that Paul has to address some of Peter's faults head-on. Peter was a a very fallible man. Obviously, we've already seen that in the Gospels when Peter denies Christ, but again, Peter has a, uh, a, something that Paul needs to address here that relates directly to the Gospel. In verses 7 through 10, we see that the Apostles approve of Paul's message, they give the right hand of fellowship to them, and they make agreements then on how they're going to continue to work together. And uh, in effect, we learn that both groups have the same gospel, the same mission, but they maybe have a a different focus is what we see play out. The mission is the same for everyone, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. In verse 8, Paul mentions that Peter and Paul were both entrusted by God With the same gospel, right? Peter spent time with Jesus for three years in his earthly ministry. He heard the gospel, he saw him in action. Paul received the call directly from Jesus on the road to Damascus through a revelation. They both received the same gospel from the same source, but independently from each other. In verse 9, he says that the apostles gave the right hand of fellowship to he and to Barnabas. Uh, the Judaizers have been trying to show again that Paul received the gospel from the apostles and then distorted it. And what Paul has argued here, he's effectively shown that he received it from God independently and then the apostles here have approved of it. They've given their stamp of ratification on it and said, this is good. Uh, even though it was independently brought about, they, they approve it. Because it's the same. It's the same gospel that they're preaching. There is only one gospel. And this is the gospel of grace. Grace. And finally, in verse 10, uh, he says that the apostles asked, um, just as they're looking at mutual agreements, how will we work together? You guys work with the uncircumcised, we'll work with the circumcised. They say to remember the poor. Now, again, if Acts 11, 27 through 30 um, holds as that reason that Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem, it was a relief mission for the poor anyway that they were on. And Paul says that he was eager for this type of mercy ministry in the first place. So let's look at a few final points of application by working our way backward through this last little bit. Um, Again, I I don't think this is the main point of the passage, obviously, but verse ten I think is instructive to us. Um, The apostles found it important enough to to mention remembering the poor to Paul and Barnabas, and at this important juncture in their ministry. And Paul found it important enough to include again in his letter when he told us about it. Um, So I think I think it's pretty important. Uh, The application is simply this. We can't forget and neglect mercy ministry and meeting practical needs along with our theology and our evangelism. They go hand in hand. Do we remember the poor, the orphans, the widowed, the immigrants, the minorities, the persecuted? We should have a heart for them. We should be looking to meet their needs. We should be involved in our culture in trying to, to meet them and get them. However, I think there's also a danger when we look at it meeting practical needs, when we think about social justice, how God's at work using his church in these ways, we cannot simply divorce the rest of our faith from the gospel and the way we approach it. They work hand in hand, as I said. The gospel is the centerpiece, and there's a danger when we adopt the world's perspectives and methods without carefully examining them to make sure that we can root everything about the way that we approach loving others firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one point of application, remember the poor. Point two, looking back at the apostles' agreements together as they're working on what does this look like to work together Uh, this is verses like seven to nine, I think, Uh, we see that there's unity with others when we carry out the mission of the gospel. There's only one true gospel message, right? Salvation granted by the death of Jesus, by his grace, received through faith, That's given by the Holy Spirit. While there may be different methods, the mission is the same for all of us. And if we preach the same gospel, ultimately we're working together for one cause. And finally, last point of application here, looking at um, Paul and Titus and the standoff about circumcision that they have, uh, we see a contrast of freedom through Jesus and slavery through our own works. And Paul's going to go on later in Galatians 5.1 to say, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. False teaching always gives us the illusion of freedom and increased control But in the end, it puts us in bondage to falsehood and to other people. Saul thought that he was progressing in his own faith, right, by the works of his hands. He thought he was climbing this ladder to God, but he was in deep bondage and sin. On the Damascus Road, all of a sudden, Paul saw that he was helplessly in the midst of sin and could do nothing to earn favor with God. He was free, all of a sudden, from his old life. He was free from the burden of the law and free to follow the calling that God had placed on him to preach to the Gentiles. So if you're a believer and you're listening this morning, I would encourage you to consider your freedom in Christ. Because so often we think about freedom in terms of an absence to any obligation, right? I, think about freedom. I just want to be free. <laughs> um, and that's That's partially true. I think true freedom is about not being in bondage to anything, but it's also about, if we want to experience true freedom, being fully united to Christ. We have a freedom in Christ from, and we have a freedom in Christ to. We have a freedom from sin, a freedom from the law, while we have a freedom to follow Christ and a freedom to proclaim him, to live in the kingdom now. We're free to pursue him with our entire heart and soul and mind and fully free to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what true freedom looks like, being united to Christ and free from other obligations. If you're listening this morning and you've never put your faith and trust and hope in Christ, hear this. Apart from Christ, you're still in bondage to sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Jesus said that he is the the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. He died on the cross to pay our penalty for sin, and he rose again to life incorruptible so that one day we might do the same. So I would encourage you to turn to him, to put your faith and your trust in him, to lay down the burden of trying to do things on your own and your own ways and to work your way into righteousness. You can have true freedom in him today through his grace. Let's pray.